so yesterday we're recording on a Tuesday today. Yesterday was my day of rest. Mm-hmm. I went down to Victoria. A good priest friend of mine. Um, he's been lit, he's in a mil- military ordinary, and he's been re- he's being redeployed to Ottawa for a new assignment. And uh, so I went down to say we w- went down to have dinner and say goodbye to him. And then the vicar general, who's a, a good friend, like where we've I've known him for twenty years, right? So he's the reason I'm a priest. All this stuff. He he's also the director of our cathedral. And he goes, hey, do you want to go golfing on Monday? I'm like, yeah, sure. And first, it was just one of the best days of rest I've ever had. See, I'm very happy for you, but you do not strike me as a golfing fella. Oh, really? I was on the golf team in high school. Oh, really? This is a fun fact about Father Harrison I never knew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, w- I, uh, I, I played golf pretty much every day in high school. I worked at a golf course in the kitchen, so I got free golfing there. Yeah. I had a membership at Meadow Gardens, and I was on the golf team, so I pretty much got free golfing every day wow okay so you actually know what you're doing when you play golf i did and then i went to university and golfing got expensive sure yeah <laughs> so i actually hadn't played in two years okay but like yeah yeah so yeah I, I like to golf sometimes yeah it was good you know and then but it was it was just a nice day of rest like it was just it was perfect weather it was like 20 degrees celsius which is around 68 fahrenheit it was sunny perfect breeze reading visiting quiet time alone prayer it was just like like this is what a day of rest should be like a healthy de- balance of socialization and just quite alone time and exercise in in good company so anyways we i we just it was just a par three nine hole course like very simple oh, yeah, right yeah, sure um so we playing and i haven't played like i haven't played in two years and actually my first shot off the tee on the first hole was like it went straight it was per- actually uh, I overshot the green, which is it was a, I I, bro- I don't have I don't have the strongest shot. Like I suck with my drives, sure. and that was I mean using your your iron there, right? I I pulled out my five iron, yeah. and I overshot the green by twenty five yards. That's amazing. See, and, like I'm and, I'm happy if like the ball goes straight, yeah. and in the air, that's a and, win. That's a win. I don't care what yeah. score I get if it does that one time on one hole, I'm happy. And isn't it a great feeling when it's just like. A nice straight, perfectly lined up. Oh in the my air gosh! Shot. It's, it's exhilarating. It is akin to the ecstasies of heaven. Yes, but it's definitely not from heaven, in my experience. This is definitely a temptation of the evil one to get me to play more golf. Because when I play a round of golf, I'm terrible, and I'm not. I'm, this does not bother me because golf is more of an excuse to smoke cigars, have a drink, and talk with people. And then in between those things is when I hit the golf ball, right? That's mm-hmm. my golf philosophy. But like in all things, if you're playing like really terrible golf, that can weigh on you. Yes. And instead of like just abandoning this terrible pursuit and just going yeah. on to more noble things, they'll mm-hmm. be like two or three times in like, you know, nine holes or like maybe a couple more times in 18 holes where like I'll hit a beautiful drive or make an amazing putt just enough to be like, you know what? Maybe I could get good at this game if I play a little bit more. Is it of the evil one or is it the cross on the way to the redemption? Oh, maybe it is. Maybe these are just the moments, uh, you know, uh, Veronica using her veil to like, you know, dab the face of Christ, uh, like this moment of relief. In this yes, wider exactly. struggle, maybe, maybe, which would make it the most Catholic of sports. Fascinating. Which is funny because it's a Scottish sport, which is not so Catholic. But anyways, oh, so. back in the day it was, uh, of course. Yes. Well, yes, yes. Uh, so we anyways, finally so did it. We, we finally became super bougie priests because we're talking yeah, we about golf. Golf. <laughs> yes. Priests and golf. This is what happens. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we get to the ninth hole. So after eight holes, he's ahead two strokes. Oh. And. 
I thought to myself, you know, who knows what could happen. And the last hole is pretty simple. It's pretty straight. But no hazards, happen. really. I said to myself, I just started joking. I, I did a joking prayer out loud. <laughs> I said, oh, holy, oh, holy God, our Father, who brings mercy to the just and your faithful ones, smite mine enemy. Help him have a horrible hole. <laughs> Bring him to the punishment that he rightly deserves. And let your faithful servant win the game. Beautiful. And on the last hole, so remember, I'm down two strokes. Right, right, right. He shoots a seven. I shoot a four. And I won the game. Wow. He got a seven on par three? The Lord That's heard rough. my plea and my cry. <laughs> and then I, so I tweeted about this and everyone's Blessed joking. Be God. Like, and yes, exactly. <laughs> and, then everyone's joke, and, then, and then everyone's joking on Twitter about, because I tweeted about this, you know, it was, it, was a little, it was funny, right? It was funny. Yes, great joke. This actually happened. This yes. worked. Um, and everyone's joking. In other news, you know, Father Harrison's been moved to Antarctica and <laughs> after beating the Vicar General. So I took him out for lunch yeah. uh, as a way to, you know, ensure his, his wrath does not get impugned upon me. Prudence, prudence. I like that. Yes. But yeah, so that was, it was just, it's so rare sometimes to have a really good day of rest like that where it just really truly feels like rest. Mm -hmm. That I was just like, this is great. And, you know, it's not a day of slack as some people on Twitter like may like to, to pre present themselves to those people who believe there's only work mm. and there is no leisure in life. Mm. You know who you are. Yeah. We pray um, for those souls, those poor souls. We pray for souls. those souls because... To rest is the glory and the pinnacle of creation. And I felt I entered into the Lord's rest yesterday, and it was great. Your joy brings me joy. It was great. So that, I just wanted to share that. So welcome to the restful part of your day, folks, with Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. And uh, depending on, you know, some people, I think, you know, listen to podcasts during, when, during work, when they're working out. But uh, hopefully they can find some rest. But a few more golf things. Okay, so let me let me key you in on some Sharapa family golf etiquette. So I think like a lot of casual golfers, I'm not sure if it's a, a rule or whatever, but we make it so you can't get more than double the par, right? So if it's a par four, at eight, you stop counting, you get an eight, right? And if there's like, you know, room and there's not a lot of people on the course, we'll just keep playing, you know, because why not? You know, you're there. Right. But if you get a, a, let's say it's a par four and you get a natural eight, so you actually got, you know, eight strokes and not like nine or 10 or 12 if mm -hmm. you're playing with me. Um, in that case, on the scorecard, we put a little smiley face in the eights. Or a little smiley face in the six, so you know you did it. You did. I can, that was and I can I can hear Nick just screaming. You did it. <laughs> exactly. And Nick Nick is pretty good. Um, definitely better than me. Um, maybe the best golfer in our family, just as far as natural talent and stuff goes. But we don't golf enough to uh, get good. And he told me a story from one of his friends who um, I don't know if he's semi pro or whatever, but just big time golfer. And Nick was getting frustrated golfing, right? Because it can be frustrating sometimes. And and his buddy who plays golf all the time looks at him and says. You have no right to be frustrated. How often do you practice? How often do you go to the driving range? This is like the second time you played golf all year. I'm allowed to get frustrated because I do this all the time. And I'm doing terrible. I'm allowed to be frustrated. You're not. And I think about that. I think about it every time I get frustrated with golf. It's like, you know what? I don't play enough to get frustrated. Calm down. Everything right, is fine. Right. Yep. And you just enjoy it. I mean, you get, you get that one hole and you're just like, ugh. Because 
for whatever reason, maybe you're playing too quickly or whatever, and you're just not being patient. Like, it's a great game to teach you patience. It is. It is. It is an exercise. And humility. And lots of humility. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my uh, day of rest was much like yours, almost exactly the same. Instead of, instead of playing golf, I just played Civilization Five all day. <laughs> All day. All day. Instead of hour and a half on a par nine. No, did no. You, did you read anything? I um, would read uh, what my advisors told me about the competing nations. Okay. Uh, I did that, yeah. Did you eat food with anyone? I had a uh, kind of a stale cinnamon roll for breakfast while playing the game. But but, but with any like real in-life person did well you like n- like nick was like working uh i think in his yard for a while so he was on the same property as me okay mm-hmm. did you pray um okay so now let's get real whoa <laughs> am i am i outing you here yeah I... but it's okay because this is the thing this is the thing i've mastered if i can be so bold <laughs> My personal life, the last yeah a month or so, more so, uh, I my holy hour, hour every day. The one day mm-hmm. that it slips is my day off, because something about not having a chapel like in my room, and also like I you know I get to my brother's house, I end up staying up too late, it throws off my sleep schedule. So this is the one, this is my one, my one flaw, and everything else I am beyond reproach. But no, I did not pray like a formal holy hour that day. Uh, so there's that. Um, for people who don't know, Civilization V is basically um, like a computerized version of Risk, the board game. More complicated than that, but if you have no idea what Civ Five is, yeah, I'll say that's that. Giving a, that's giving a lot of respect to Risk. Okay. Um, but uh, here's the thing. <laughs> and people are like, oh my goodness, priests play, play video games. I can't believe you talk about video games on the podcast. I, I'm going to break something to you. I'm 31 years old. Of course I play video games. This is no longer a niche sort of thing. Every millennial on some level plays video games. It doesn't make me special or interesting as a priest, okay? So just deal with it. But it's been a while since I played a game that has like snuck into my brain and will not let me go because I'm not good at this Civ 5 game. I've played for hours and hours and haven't won. But finally. Really? Yeah. I'm normally pretty good at games and stuff. I, I went at Civ all the time. I haven't played in a while. Okay. Well, good for you. I'm just saying it more because you're <laughs> way better at video games in general. In general, right. But this like So I'm just gonna take this W. Yeah, you know good for you. That that's wonderful. <laughs> good for you. Father Harrison, Master Golfer, Master at Civ Five. I'm not Master Mr. Golfer, I'm publishing me. a book and stuff. And I actually combed my hair today. You're winning at all the things. Good for you, Harrison. <laughs> But anyway. Anyway, sorry. Finally, Continue. finally, finally, I won a Let game. Let me share in your joy. I won a game of Civ Five. For those interested, it was a standard size map, continents. I played as Japan. Wouldn't play as them again. I think my, my style is more towards uh, Russia. But it was like, ah. Uh, like, the, the, the hold on my brain is, like, lessened. And now I can just play it casually. Before, because I wasn't winning, I was trying to figure out how things work, how the AI works, what are the strategies. Now, finally, I can let it go. So, two questions. Yes. And I know the answer to the second one, but for the sake of the people. Yeah. The first question, though, is, why is Russia more your style? Do you do you tend towards totalitarianism? No, I think I just tend to be more orthodox kind of guy, you know? And totalitarian. Uh, we, no, because I, <laughs> I will pick, like, like, there's different, like, 
policies you can pick as your civilization progresses. Yeah. And really, honestly, the last one, if you're going to pick freedom, there's a military one, and there's the communist one. you got to pick the communist one. That gives you the best bonuses for having lots of cities. So, yes, yes, I, I do. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then how, how did you achieve your victory? Was it by war? Was it by technology, culture? The way it turned out is basically the map generated two different continents, and I was able to basically beat everyone on my continent. It was really dicey in the middle of the game because basically my continent was split between me and France. We had an epic war. I won. But America was on the other side. So it was Japan versus America. And Mid everything... 1942 my... all over again. Exactly. And I know how that goes. So I wasn't going to go attack them because they you know, had a much stronger military than me. So I won by completing the space program. Because they never came over. They left me alone. They just kept denouncing me and saying I was terrible. I'm like, I don't care. I'm building a spaceship. So I built my spaceship. I won the game. And now I'm at peace. Nice. Yes. Very cool. Huh. I got Civ 6 because Epic Games was giving out for like free for two weeks I or missed whatever. this. I'm very disappointed I missed this sale. I haven't played it yet, and I probably will not play it until I get moved and settled into my new place. It's dangerous, man. That game is like crack life cocaine. Is, life is kind of crazy right now, but it's a fun game. And Okay, quick, quick. I mean, man, we're going long for banter tape. That's okay. Um, just a quick aside, because just to help assuage those whose uh, hearts might have gone a flutter in um, anxiety over the mention that you would dare to play video games. Yes. Um, is it okay for, you know, especially something like Civ Five? that is equal to playing like a really intense board game yeah except it's just on a screen yeah that's the difference really yeah so it's, it's okay it's recreation as long as it's balanced right and i do have to watch out for like single yes. player games or games with a long yeah. storyline that can take over my life i need to watch out for that but especially like multiplayer games like playing with john blevins or taylor Schroll or you guys or the people like that's actually a really fun way to connect with people yeah and do stuff but I think those those uh, single player games, you just gotta be eh, temperate about things. But uh, that's right. Sometimes it's hard for me to be temperate because I right. want to play all the video games all the time and turn into yes. a garbage person and I just still, like eat stale cinnamon rolls and ignore Nick and Riley even when we're in the same house and just play my game. And because it's just one more turn, Harrison, it's just one more turn. I gotta see what happens. Okay, one more turn. Let's see how the board looks now. But I did gotta you, do this. Did did you keep on screaming out Americanism is a heresy during the game? <laughs> I did not. I should have. That would have been great. <laughs> That would have been great. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, uh, let's go into the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. That's true. I can just do that. I'm going to do that. Nick, new take. The Summa Theologica is St. Thomas's summary of theology, and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. And the first thing up comes from Jape Sentner. Sure, at Jape Sentner. JP, the Catholic Zag. He puts it in the stars. Guy is on trial for stabbing. Lawyer. Your Honor, my client truly thought the victim was a cake. 
Okay, so um, here's the thing. We're getting to a lot of Arcana right now, right? Yes. We're get, we, we, did, we did the Civ Five Arcana, the Golf Arcana. Now we're doing like super Twitter Arcana. So you're going to have to explain this to normal people yeah. who have lives and aren't living on Twitter. That's right. Why stabbing a guy, a defense that uh, you thought the guy was cake and that's why you stabbed him, is a very funny tweet. Explain <laughs> it, it, this to the people. Because it is. It's a very funny tweet. Uh, but I want to say about two months ago maybe. A video started popping up on Twitter of a guy who knew how to make cakes look like real things, like a, a Coke can or a flower pot or uh, Crocs. And then, but you you would find that you were always wrong in your judgment because as they would take a knife and they'd cut through it to show that it was in fact just a really well-decorated cake. So, so what JP's playing on here is this idea that because then, well, yeah, in these last two weeks, I want to say on Twitter, suddenly cake was everywhere. And and more videos of people imitating this were coming out. And suddenly everyone's thinking, is everything cake? Is everything cake? And so this is what JP's joke is, is kind of going with. And I just thought this was funny in light of all of the stuff around cake. Because in first, it's like, yeah, not everything is cake. But you can't. <laughs> Actually, the cake is a lie. Yeah. Maybe the real cake was the friends we made all along the way. That's terrible. Okay, so uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I watched this video, and I, I like you get the premise of the video right away. Like this thing does not look like cake. It turns out it's cake. But every single time, I was like, "There's no way that's cake." And then they would cut it, and it would be cake. I'm like, "Oh my goodness, it's cake!" And so uh, I love all the cake jokes. I love the existential crisis of trying to figure out whether or not you're cake. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. I will find this funny long after it has stopped being funny. Because sometimes that's the kind of person that I am. That's right. It was just funny. Okay. All right. What do yeah. you got? This tweet is from Brandon McGinley, who has, as a side note, a book that just got published called The Prodigal Church. We'll probably talk about that later on uh, in a few episodes. But he has this tweet that says, the six-year-old is shocked and appalled that witchcraft isn't illegal. So I don't know. So like... <laughs> Um, I I just love hearing stories about families where, uh, like these little kids grew up in like these Catholic households, and you really don't realize. Like, I think this is the thing that happens that a lot of people of our generation are trying in a more conscientious way to to have a household with a Catholic culture, mm-hmm. but you never know exactly like the how that's gonna turn out or like how that's forming a young mind because like. Catholicism becomes normal for them, which is how it's supposed to be, right? This is supposed to be something you grow up with and live with and experience, you know, from the time you're very itsy bitsy tiny. And seeing that the six year old is shocked that witchcraft isn't illegal, that makes perfect sense if you're Catholic, right? right? This is an evil thing. Witchcraft is bad. How come it isn't illegal? It's so pure, it's so good, and it's a, a little sign that, you know, that the McGinleys are doing something right if a six year old thinks that witchcraft should be illegal. That's awesome. And, and you know, with when a six-year-old says this, instead of saying, like, oh, no, 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 it's it's more complicated than that. Instead of, like, trying to, like, adults explain things to them, ask them, well, why do you think it should be illegal? Like, give me your reasons. Like, engage their reason with those things, you know? Because there's something, I think too often, sometimes as adults, it's, it gets very easy to quickly try to disenchantize children. Mm. To remove all enchantment from the world, and that's not, that's never a good thing. Um, so you don't ruin that if you help them, ask them like where where they're coming from and why they're saying this. And kids have a a very 
adept way of bringing you through their reasoning. It's very clear. And yes, sometimes it's mistaken and sometimes it's missing nuances, etc. But, you know, so instead of like becoming dismissive of, oh, that's just a childish thing to say. Right. Why are you saying that? What, 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 what? See, that's one aspect, but, you know, and, and Brandon can take our, our sage advice any way he wants to, but I would say to Brandon, I mean, this well, is he should. T- we're, we're priests. Right, and absolutely, so as laity, absolutely. he has to listen to every word and do every word we say. These are the rules, but we know that not everyone follows the rules. But right. I would hope that Brandon would use this opportunity to further radicalize his child hmm. and say something like, when you become president, you can make it illegal. This is how we have the integralist vision. This is how we bring it together. And you just start radicalizing your children now. I'm all for it. Nice. Huh. Now I have to make a choice between two that I like. Should I go? Should I? Okay. Let's 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 discern this on, on the air here. Okay. Should I go more heartwarming or more like into the heart and life of parish life that isn't always so pretty? Okay. We talked about cake. And a cute story from a six year old. So I want, think it's time we do something heavier. You want you you want you want you want the junk. Yeah. Right. Uh I would phrase that differently, but yes. All right. Yes. All right. <laughs> well, the tweet itself is not the junk. because uh, this no. comes from Father Matt Fish, who of eminable em, uh, I can't speak, you know. You know of great eminence. There we go. The sure. great Matt Fish. Uh surprising or not, parishes often approach high school levels of drama, gossip, cliques, and judgment. Definitely what I was most unprepared for as a priest. And what I'd first warn a new priest about, smiling faces. Smiling faces tell lies. He goes on. It's sad, but very good advice. The people who first introduce themselves to you and are most nice to you are the ones you should trust the least. The ones you'll want to trust the most, your advisors, you won't know them for months. They're not caught up in the drama. And he's right. I think, I don't know, I think it's something I would hope in the future, either you're a new priest and the your mentor priest kind of thing as their pastor will train the young people to understand this, or in your last year of, of seminary where you're doing like practice of ministry stuff, your your seminary formation team will kind of engage with this because I'm like Matt, I was, and I, actually I, I want to maybe uh, put a little asterisk with this, I guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much your first days as a priest, but it's your first it's your when it's your first time as a pastor, because that's when you suddenly are, you're the one who makes the decisions, and so suddenly people care what you what you do and don't think of them. Um, I mean, it, it happens when you're assistant too, but I find it it's more cute when you're a pastor, because like I can say to, for myself honestly, my first time as a pastor in my first parish as a pastor, I was completely naive to all this, and I trusted everyone equally way too quickly. Yeah, so I think, and I think it's, I don't know if this will be, this won't be surprising to anyone who's worked in the parish, but right. I think it'll be surprising to the average parishioner. Right. Uh, because sometimes, a, oftentimes in parishes and in like the inner circles of the parish, it becomes this weird kind of cliquish thing, like any kind of small enclosed culture can sort of be. And so, indeed, a lot of times, the person who's most eager to meet you and tell you the lay of the land, they're trying to use you. And they don't know it. Here's the thing. A lot of people, That's right. it, it's Isn't, not malicious. Yeah. They just don't know themselves well enough. It's rarely um, malicious, I should say. Yeah. And indeed, like, you know, I've had, uh, you know, times where it's like, oh, it seems like this person is just inviting me and wants me to be part of their life. 
And then, you know, we're hanging out and they start just trying to pry me open for information mm-hmm. about the parish and trying to get me into the gossip. Like I said, that people aren't doing this, on, you know, on purpose, but it happens. So, but you also have to be careful not to go too far the other way. Because after you experience this, it's very easy to become cold, not yes. talk to people, to trust nobody. So you don't want to go on that way either. But I was actually just talking with a, a priest friend of mine saying that um, as a parochial vicar, he had no problem. He was going out to eat like all the time with all kinds of people from his parish. But as a pastor, he does not do that anymore. Right. Uh, just because, you know, for him, there's, and I think maybe different priests can handle this differently, but I think his reasoning is more or less that, you know, the, the power dynamics are there such that it's almost not even fair to, to them. So if he's going out to eat, he's going out to eat with his, you know, uh, friends that he's already known. Hmm. He, he won't do it with parishioners as the pastor, hmm. uh, just to avoid those sort of things. Because you also have to watch out. Like, like, oh, the pastor had dinner, you know, with this family. Is is you know that the pastor's favorite? Mm-hmm. Or are they the ones really controlling the parish? And I have heard like really terrible, terrible rumors. Um, and then, like, I think another priest told me we could basically, or maybe it was on Twitter, that you could basically preach every other homily about gossip and still not be enough. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible, terrible blight on parishes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I always say to people, um, I remember I preached a homily on gossip once and it was very well received. Like a lot of people really appreciated it. Yeah. Um, I've learned since then and I wish people may have internalized it a bit more. I, one yeah. thing I said in my homily, I said, just remember whatever you say about the pastor, it always comes back to him because father's it got snitches does. everywhere. Yeah. And not, and not, not me. Like I, I haven't purposely and politically set people up. It just gets back to you somehow, right. one way or another. You find out about what people have been saying about because things, that's right? how gossip works. That's how gossip works. Um, it gets back to the source, and so you have to be careful. And I mean, like, and we have to be because I think, listen, literally everyone falls into gossip sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Myself included. I try my hardest to not, but I recognize, hey, oh wait, I you share too much or something like that, and yeah, you, you, you confess that obviously, right? So, but sometimes it can be get more malicious. And again, I don't think this is intentionally malicious in its gossip, but it can get malicious and in the sense of like it's tearing a person down right when it's saying i can't believe they're doing it they're not doing things the way i want blah 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 but i think the other thing like i i don't know if i'd go to the extremes of your friend but like i've, I've definitely learned like i i'm going going i'm going into my new parish now with a new set of eyes than yeah. i did before um and in a way i'm actually kind of blessed that because of covid i can't really do a whole lot anyway so people can't schmooze me to get what they want right away anyways because I'm just I'm showing up I'm saying mass I'm hearing confessions doing some ministration that's all I can really do um, so it's like advantages advantages in that sense but I've started to learn that while having a heart of trust towards people is good in the end out of like love in love trust has to be earned mm-hmm. right it has to be earned I mean there's there's basic levels of trust you should ought to show to everyone and until it gets you know, ruined. But when you're a pastor, it's like, wait, I, I can seek advice. I can seek um, people's advice and stuff like that. But I have to do it a bit more. I have to, I have to give it more time. Yeah, and, and I think also just to make sure that you hear from a lot of different voices. Yeah, because like I think right. one of the things I've really learned, I was actually it's funny because it was actually during COVID I kind of learned this, and I was about to kind of get going on it, then you know things change. Ninety five percent of the people in your parish usually are pretty happy with you. Because they're oh, yeah. they're or happy they with other yeah. well yeah they don't care but they're just happy to have a priest right right if they even think about it that much but and those are the people they show up every week they give every week 
They give mm-hmm. extra when there's little extra things being asked for. And they're just quietly doing their thing. And I think we as pastors, because, you know, when you get, especially when you get to a new place, we don't tend to seek those people out. Those are the people who should ought to be sought out first. Yeah. Because uh, they're the ones who often don't get a voice. And they're not yeah. out there gossiping either. They're just yeah. like, whatever. They don't even know what's going on in the parish. It's like, hey, yeah, so what, what are your thoughts about this thing in the parish, you know? Uh, or what do you want to see in the parish? Or mm-hmm. maybe they're happy and they're like, I don't want to see anything. Okay, cool. But we need to listen to the ones who are a lot quiet or who are quiet a lot more. Yep. All right, let's get deeply theological with a tweet from Father Thomas Petri, Order of Preachers. And I I think he just wanted to cause a stir on Twitter. Um, I think he just wanted to cause mischief with this quote from Reginald Gary Lagrange. And so let's let's break it open. And it's a quote that says, the ultimate reason why one person is better than another is that God loves him more. And then he says, sorry, folks. Okay. You want to break this down with me? You go first. I Okay. Yeah, go first. Go nuts. So the claim, the claim is, is that uh, why is one person better than another? Because God loves him more. And your gut reaction was, oh, no. God loves everyone the same. He loves the saint and the sinner. Okay. Both that intuition and what uh, Gary Goulagrange has said, they're both actually true. This is my understanding of it. Uh, let's, talk, let's say, let's make this concrete. Does God love Mary more than you? I think there's a way to say yes and a way to say no. Uh, why does God love Mary more than you? Because she is more open to his love. So this is a, a mode of the receiver kind of thing is how I understand it that the more open you are to the love of God, the more, in a sense, God can love you. Mm-hmm. So like the bigger the container, the more water you can fill into it. And this is often how it works with souls. That the more open you are to the spirit, the more that God's love can be poured into you. So, Which itself has to be a grace. Man, we're going to get into some... Exactly, right? This is a whole big here. thing. Right, so it's, 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 it's kind of a fun theological thing to say because it, you really have to think... You have to be, yeah, we have things. to be careful about Pelagianism. Right, right. So, oh, you're right. Okay, yeah, because we don't want to be Pelagian. So Pelagianism is the idea that you either earn, basically, uh, that you earn your way to salvation, that it's your works that save you, which Catholics do not believe. Grace saves you. So I'm going to try to formulate this correctly, uh, that God gives us the grace to freely respond to him. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's maybe a short version of the Catholic idea that God gives you the grace to freely accept Him, uh, and the more that that happens, the more that God can love you in a sense. Mm-hmm. But I think you also have to hold up in the sense that God is unchanging, that God's love in a certain sense is equal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the best way to understand that. It's been a while since I've taken a theology course on that, but. Uh, Someone su- suggested that we talk about this, so that's that's my two cents on it. Okay, I gotta. I wasn't prepared for this. Um... I don't like RGL's phrasing. So here's the other thing, by the way. Just because right. a theologian said it doesn't mean it's true either. Also true. Sometimes theologians say dumb things to say. Like... Sometimes they say imprecise things. Right. Sometimes they make you know exaggerate to make a certain kind of point. Right. 
and they exclude other yeah, points. I think you're right. I think you're, you you make an important and helpful distinction around the idea of kind of the larger container idea. Yeah, that person mm-hmm. has, has, has the capacity to receive more of God's love because they have allowed God's love to transform them more. And so it's mm-hmm. this, um, and then th- that question, we should do a Mary, Mary episode on that one day because I think that question around the Immaculate Conception, it's the, the Immaculate Conception can really kind of help us understand how God's relates to how God's love relates and transforms uh, human beings. Mm-hmm. I don't like RGL's, sorry, RGL, Reg, Reginald Gary Goulogarage. That's his, that's the acronym. Um, I don't. His friends call him RGL. Yes. I, we're not friends, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't like the phrasing, one person is better than another. Mm-hmm. I don't, because then it actually starts to undermine a magisterial teaching around universal human dignity. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that to re- to relate that betterness, if you will, to g- the proportion in which you've received God's love. Because then it's essentially saying God plays favorites. Right. Or you can really push it and do go all the way to double predestination. Exactly. Where God basically creates some people to be saved and some people to be damned. Right. And that is not a Catholic viewpoint. So I struggled with this tweet because I, because there's a, there's a lot of distinctions you have to kind of play with. So, for example, God's love is infinitely offered to all beings. Mm-hmm. In fact, Phyllis, even just basic philosophy, we are upheld in God's very being right now. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. have to be. I mean, like... Created being, yes, we have. Sorry, I don't. I'm not going to go down the philosophical rabbit hole here. Sorry. Um, the issue, I think, becomes it's it places. To, it's to me what I'm hearing is a neglect or a response in that tweet about the role of human freedom in response to God's love which I think can help nuance and balance it out a bit more. Yeah, there is. I I, I could say probably I'm still, I'm not hundred percent on this folks. Remember I'm not the magisterial. I'm just a theologian who's thinking things through. Um, mm-hmm. But I have had problems with the saying like God's love for everyone is equal because of that issue of proportionality of, of response. But God's love is offered to all at the same time. And that's why I think the problem with it, it, it's, it's, it's too weighted on the divine side without bringing in, in a paradoxical way, the realm of human freedom and how those two things play together. So I don't know. I just found it, honestly, I found it an unhelpful tweet. Well, okay. So normally I would, and kind of confusing. Right, right. It definitely is. And I think you have to be careful with this sort of thing because you're communicating to all kinds of people via Twitter. Um, to Father Thomas's uh, credit, he does interact with a lot of the responses, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, if that causes you some confusion, that's okay because that's it's confusing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, but I, thought, hey, I mean, I, mean like, I think it, maybe this is this can be a podcast episode because I think it's a good topic to talk about. Um mm. But I just I worry about how at least how it can be read in a, in a North American context, in the realm of dignity of personhood, because what it essentially starts to say is some mm-hmm. people have more dignity than others. 
Yeah, and, and there's all kinds of really nasty ways that can go. Dangerous, based on recent magisterial teachings around human dignity. There you go. That's just it. So, in other words, I got many opinions that I still have to think through about that tweet. Cool. All right, let's go in. Let's go. Let's talk about that response to love, though, in a way. Oh. Let's go into presbyteral exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. All right. Um, we'll see how this goes today. But um, no matter how it goes, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Because we've had we've had our two most famous bumpers. That's right. We're back to normalcy. Everything's going to be okay, Harrison. Everything's going to be okay. So, I read this. I reread this article on my day of rest by Father Paolo Prosperi, who was part of the uh, Fraternal Society of Saint Charles Borromeo, which is associated with communion liberation. He used to teach at the JP Two Institute. Now he's been transferred back to Rome. I think he's teaching out there. Um, brilliant man. Really brilliant. And so he wrote this article in Communio from the summer 2018 called Do Not Hold Me, Ascending the Ladder of Love. And it's a reflection on the relationship between virginity and love. So I want to kind of, I want to, and it got me thinking about what does, what does priestly celibacy look like? Because it is in a way a participation in virginal love. We are mm-hmm. renouncing a a good for the sake of the kingdom. How do, and like and how do we see this in a positive light? Because it is meant to be seen primarily that the positive outweighs the renunciation, and the renunciation is seen in the in the in light of the positive. Um, and that to actually see that through, this is something I think a lot, especially in a hypersexualized culture, this is the hard thing for us to kind of get into our brains. Virginity is the fuller possession of human love. It is, it is, actually, it without denigrating obviously sexual love within marriage. Mm-hmm. Virginity, in its heart, in its core, is actually a fuller. It is, it is meant to be a sign of what human love is going to look like in its fullness in the kingdom. And this is a hard thing right there, just right there. That is controversial to say, even in Orthodox circles. Sure. Why, why, why is that? Let's, let's discuss that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in the past, uh, culturally speaking in the church, uh, kind of uh, having a, the hierarchy in a sense of vocations was a very normal sort of thing. You know, it, and it, it stems from the fact that Jesus Christ brought something radically new to the world. Right. And that is, uh, you know, uh, virginity right. or consecrated uh, uh, or celibacy, yeah. right? Because the whole idea in the Old Testament, it goes uh, way back to the beginning. The one of the first commandments that God gives is be fruitful and multiply. Right. And that's why you see in all these Old Testament stories, like the idea that if someone doesn't, uh, if a woman doesn't bear children, she's in some way cursed because you're unable to fulfill this thing that God desires human beings to do. Yeah. And so Jesus Christ himself would have been seen as an odd figure being 30 some years old and not married. Like, what are you doing? You're not being a good Jewish person. You're not fulfilling this commandment of God. But Christ brings to light this new way of loving, uh, this way that's pointing both pointing to the future and living it out now 
in in uh, celibacy. And so uh, early church was very enthusiastic about this idea mm-hmm. and so held it up as this new and special thing that it is for a long, 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 long time. But more recently, I think especially with uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, uh, there's been an increase in like, okay, maybe we've gone too far in the emphasis here and we don't want to degrade marital love. Um, and even if you look at most of the saints that were canonized, they were celibate men and women, right? So uh, now there's like a... a, a emphasis on like, wait, we don't want to degrade marriage. This is still a good thing. Because obviously, right. if God calls you to marriage, right. that's a good thing. Right. Uh, so I think now there's the pendulum has swung the other way, even in Catholic circles, yeah. where like you don't want to see anything special, anything important about celibacy. They're all kind of equal. Right. And we have, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but we do have this problem with like valuing things or what's equal and like our ideas of that is very different than God's idea of that. So a lot of that is just culturally ingrained in us. You know, this this anxiety around what's the best or you can't say what's the best or what does that mean? It's all it's all a mess. Yeah. Yes. So you're bringing up, I think, a very important point that I kind of wanted to bring up at the heart of this because I think, and I think I want to do an episode on this one day, is how to think in an authentic Catholic way because... Um, um, what happens here? We sit when we say something is higher, we think automatically that it's a denigration of whatever is considered lower, or we hear that mm-hmm. something's lower and therefore it's actually worse. Right? Um, no, you can hold. I mean, at the heart of Catholic thinking is paradox. You hold these two things in tension at once. That you can have both of these as a real good, and both of these as means to holiness, with with one as a pathway, though, to the higher one. Because guess what? What does Jesus say about about eternity? In heaven, they will neither be married nor given in marriage. And so Jesus is saying, even like with virginity and celibacy, it is pointing to the reality of human love that's going to exist in eternity, which is going to be in a non-carnally sexual way. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And we can hold these things and say, these are both true at the same time. This thing is a higher good because it's a fuller form of love without saying, and it's not like I'm saying those who are married, you don't love. Right. I'm, I'm just, I think it's important because I know some people are screaming this in their car right now. Yeah. Well, and also it's this weird thing where we have this competitive idea exactly. of holiness. Exactly. Right. Instead of seeing like, There is you no know, competition um, in love. There. Yes, exactly. That's very important to remember that, um, it would be so much better to have the attitude of, or for example, um, religious life in general, we would say is higher than uh, pastoral or uh, the secular priesthood. Mm-hmm. Can we say that just for a second? You know, okay, that's true. But I shouldn't be mad because uh, our friend Friar Nick is a religious. Right. That's actually a gift to me, the fact that he exactly. is a religious. Exactly. Because we're all part of the same body. So we should rejoice that certain people have been given um, these higher callings. Right. Uh, because that's good for us. Mm-hmm. And we've been given the exact calling that we need. So why are we being weirdly competitive about stuff? Right. And we have to remember that the virginal state that priests and religious live is a sign to those in marriage of what they too will one day live. Mm-hmm. And so they're there to point the way for them towards their eternal destiny. And so it's not, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a vocation of service in that sense too, right? But I want to, I want to. And just as also, as a side note to bounce things a little bit, yeah. 
the the married life is uh, a sign to us right. of the yes. concrete nature of love of sacrifice and they like it helps us live our celibacy better they, when you see the sacrifices the crosses and the joys of holy married life right they they absolutely feed each other um and that's important so i want to talk about yeah i want to talk so this this article focuses on on it uses the term virginity specifically um but he's trying to bring this in connection with celibacy and so i want to kind of just speak through a few a few points here because um but before you yeah. do, can we uh, talk about virginity versus celibacy just for a quick moment? Go nuts. Is he using just, you know, because I know, um, oh, what's his name? Worth a little book on virginity. Um, Father Fran- Francis. Father Dubay? Uh, he's oh, the Cantilamesa. Cantilamesa, right? Yeah. And he uses the word virginity just to talk about celibacy. Right. I think now in a Western context, in a Puritan context, virginity takes on a different uh, meaning, that it's something that you have and can lose and then it's gone. Right. Uh, and that's not really what we're talking about here. That's right. No, exactly. We're talking about virginity in a giving your entire life to God holy. That's right. It, uh, um, it, exactly. So it, it's 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 another way to talk about uh, celibacy is more of a canonical term mm-hmm. is maybe a good way to put it. Ed can correct me on this, but um, uh, my sense is celibacy is more of a canonical category for diocesan priests to right. to describe the particular state of life they exercise their their diocesan priesthood in virginity maybe, though virginity. is a more theological category to describe um, the spiritual dimensions of this celibate state that all religious and priests live in except for married priests who are like formerly anglicans and stuff like that or in the eastern tradition okay good Does that help yeah yes perfect so he talks like, especially like the first few pages. He just does this really amazing job about talking about um, virginity is not primarily about renunciation, which is how it's tend to be seen. It's how young people tend to see it when they're discerning. Mm-hmm. Okay, if I go to be a priest, that means no sex. Yes. <laughs> okay. That is indeed how a seventeen-year-old discerns. This exactly. is normal. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and that's kind of, but that's a renunciatory way of discernment. But actually, and he, what he's trying to do here is he's actually trying to give a more positive spin that, yes, there is renunciation, there is cross, but it's secondary in the life of virginity. Um, he says that virginity is a way of re- relating to reality that allows for a fuller possession, one that is a genuine foretaste of the modality the blessed will enjoy in their relation with things and especially with people in the kingdom of heaven. So virginity is a full possession of Christian love, a fuller possession. And so, and, and there's a reason for this. And there's a reason why he, he does say, like, if you can put it this way, marriage is um, a full possession of love for a particular person and persons with children in the context of a family. But you cannot give that same total love to your friends or your workmates, etc. Your wife will be, or your husband will be very angry with you if you do that, right? Right. Um, But the priest and the religious, by making the life, by choosing uh, the life of virginity, are making the choice to have a fuller possession of everyone that they serve, that they can actually love them all with an equal love. And so it's about this, it's a form of possession, he says. Um, He says that, he says that, for do we not associate the life of virginity precisely with the opposite of possession? 
namely a detachment and purification from one's desires to cling to things and to people. This is often how we popularly see virginity, right? And he says, and there is a truth to that, right? But he says, he uses this definition from Father Giassani, uh, founder of Communion Liberation. He says that um, he, he kind of holds off this paradox by saying that virginity is possession in detachment. And he goes on to make I got a couple things because I want to. I, I do. I do think there is some real um, pastoral goals to what, I, what we're going to go through here. But he goes on to use the image of a of a painting. Right? How? When do you have a fuller possession of a painting of of seeing it for what it really is? When you're up close, looking at a little detail, or when you're standing aback and looking at the whole thing. Only when you are detached from something can you see it for what it really is and therefore appreciate the beauty and the totality of the thing and love it as it really is. So you take possession by being distanced from it. Mm. It gets in, it gets interesting. Like that, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I thought, I thought, I thought that was yeah, an interesting no. thing, a way of looking at it. It's a great, it's a great image. I think all good Catholic theology uses good images. Yeah. And that, that is something to think about. Um, yeah, so I guess in that, um, you know, there there is something to be said about the up close view of a painting to appreciate a particular aspect of it, yeah. right? That's important. Um, and if we're doing the analogy that that's kind of marriage, you can see the merit in that, and uh, how that could help understand how looking closely at something could help someone appreciate what they're seeing when they take the step back. So right. I think you can use that to 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 talk about this. Yeah, yeah. So I thought he, he's trying to emphasize that true love actually has to distance itself out of love for the one that they love, which is what happens in the life of virginity. And it has to happen in marriage too. You mm -hmm. have to be able to see the whole person, which means you have to kind of, if you will, spiritually, if you will, step back. And to not just see them as someone who can fulfill your carnal desires or whatever, but as or emotional. or emotional or any other desires or fears of loneliness or anything like that. That's all idolatry. Because mm -hmm. idolatry, idolatry tries to box in a particular part of something instead of actually allowing the whole thing to be itself. Right. And that, I mean, that can be the temptation in, in marriage where you see the other person as primarily yours. Yeah. But the taking the step back is seeing them as they are their own complete person. Yeah. That they belong to Christ first. And that only when you have that vision of the other person can you truly love them. Right. So, um, I'm trying to find the... He has this really interesting thing. Cause, uh, so then, if this is the case, um, if this is the case, then... This is how I would say, like, as I was reading this, um, he says then, he says then that it helps us understand why Giassani's second definition of virginity, which is to relating to things according to their truth, to see them as they really are, right? That's what it means. Only appears to have nothing to do with sex or chastity. As a matter of fact, in order to genuinely appreciate something, which is to say to understand it, one needs to remain at a certain distance and maintain a certain detachment. And I mean, like, and don't worry, he he's going to deal with like the erotic nature of love in this article. I'm not going to go into all of that. But it got me to think that true love has to have a distance. And that that is actually, especially I would say, the nature of of priestly celibate love. 
It has to have a certain distance. Because I think what can happen in the priesthood too, we have, because priests have emotional needs and all these things, right, too, right? We all have these, and we, and often they can be even unspoken. We don't even realize it, right? And so we start to see in persons in the parish, someone who can fulfill a particular need for me. Um, this person really gets me on an intellectual level, so I'm going to spend all my time with them, right? But what happens? You've lost the distance. And, and you start to judge other parishioners according to the people who you like. Mm-hmm. And so essentially you're close to the painting without stand, which is, you know, a particular person without standing back and seeing the whole painting, which is your parish, or whatever. And so it got me to thinking about like how, how, um, um, true love needs, cause this is how God's love works. God is distant, but also imminent. He's close. It's mm-hmm. both at the same time. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing that's coming into my mind when I'm thinking about this is, uh, sometimes encounters that I have as a spiritual director. And one of the most difficult things for me as a spiritual director is when the directee is going through a lot of suffering because there's this desire to try to fix it now. Like this is a person I care about and love and I want to fix her suffering or make it go away. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're too zoomed in, mm-hmm. that you have to take a step back and realize that this person belongs to God, that their suffering in some ways is a part of God's plan. And you cannot love that person, your directee, well if you're not taking that step back and trusting God, that person. But when you do, you can begin to see, um, you, that's when you actually begin to genuinely suffer with that other person because you get kind of thrown into uh, the, the chaos of their own suffering because it's not yours to control, it's not yours to fix, it's yours to be there and to guide, but you, this person doesn't belong to you. And I, that's that's a moment where I see it a, a lot in a different way. I think that's exactly this. Yeah, this person does not belong to me at all, and and so a past like and so it kind of got me to thinking. And I mean, like it's interesting because he does like, a really good job in this article. Like I I was reading it, and I know I'm I'm not doing it justice at all, folks. Uh, um, it's been a crazy day, so I didn't get time to prepare as much as I wanted to. But um, I I want to make this. I would make this article required reading for for every seminarian, ooh, or at least or every guy in their last year of seminary, um, because he goes into a lot of this stuff about yeah okay, because in in all of this then you're still going to experience desire for another, as a priest, mm-hmm. and so in a way, in a way when I was reading this I I heard I heard an almost a gentle judgment towards priests, uh-huh. <laughs> we are not chaste. It not, it, but I mean that not in the sexual sense. I mean that in the spiritual right. sense. Okay, folks. Again, let's get our Puritan earmuffs off and and yeah. uh, <laughs> listen. What I mean by that is that we can place too much of an attachment on one particular person or thing because they fulfill a particular need. But he also says that through this process, like if we have a spiritual life in us, we can reflect on these moments and let the Lord purify us, so that essentially the the road of purification becomes a kind of stepping away from the painting. It's a way mm-hmm. of the cross. He calls it ascending the ladder of divine love, right? You, as, in other words, there is also a recognition that to grow in the love of, of, of cel- in, in your celibate life, in your virginal life, you make the promise, but you're not living the ideal right away. 
Just like in marriage, right? right? Like in marriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You love your spouse, God willing, you love your spouse more later than you do at the beginning. And so mm-hmm. it is with priesthood. We're going to, we have to work through our, our emotions, our emotional needs, our quirks, etc. And those need to be constantly purified in the life of ministry, which is like the crucible of divine love, whereby God is trying to uncork or unscrew our misdirected love. Yeah. To bring it into its right place. And so um, he's, he goes on to say, like, this is important in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, here it is. Oh, no, that's not it. I'm trying to find, do you have anything to say? Because yeah, I, I'm yeah, going to try I'm and find just, this uh, uh, quote. Yeah, applying this to, let's just apply it to, to preaching. Uh, you know, if you aren't willing to take a step back and see your community for what it is, uh, who they are as individuals and as a community, you can fall into two errors. One is always trying to please them, tell some sort of saccharine story, make them feel good, send them on their way. Or on the other hand, if you're, you know, too zoomed in and trying to fix or control, or you only see this one part of them, you can really just ream them out, uh, at the, uh, at the ambo every single time. Right. But a good preaching is a stepping back and seeing them for who they are and preaching from that place of genuine love and detachment uh, is the best way to serve them and to help them and to uh, guide them closer to Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, I mean, the experience of that, of the stepping away, of the pain of that, of the cross, there's something really, I don't know if I can put this in the words, but there's something really beautiful about it where um, I'm glad you... you you bring this up and speaking it is giving it a, a name to something that I think a lot of priests and I've already experienced where, you know, a lot of times you, you think that the pain of priesthood is going to be loneliness or you think the pain of the priesthood is going to be, but it's, it's not those really obvious things. It's this deeper thing of your heart being kind of stretched out in love as you step back. And it's at one time there's a pain in that because there's a purification and a removement of attachment, but it's also really good. Exactly. And it's when I feel most of a, as a priest that I'm. It's it's most. It's when I feel most that the priesthood is truly Christ's and I participate in it. Is in those moments where uh, God invites you to step back in order to love more. Uh, yeah, and and I think I think you've you've hit a point that I think is just so important there, and that that is like this is natural to the life. Of virginity yeah you do not go in perfect with it right, you're not right. going to this is mm-hmm. like that is now i mean i'm not let's qualify that a bit obviously obviously there should be um basic human uh, psychosexual balances in order in your life in your human in, right. in your human formation right you ought sure you ought to not to be like you know in your seminary life you know going out on one night stands or anything like that. That would be bad. I mean, I'm not saying like you're actively engaging things, but now we're dealing in the spiritual life of our attachments, of our emotional needs. And that you, when you realize I have to step back, it is a, it is a cross. Absolutely. But then looking back when we've gone through it, we see the Lord present there. 
drawing us into a more deeper and intimate love so that we can love the people of God even more. And so there's also a great, like, I find it a very incarnational way of, of, of this growth in virginity and celibacy is, is it's done in the life of ministry and relationship to your people. That insofar as you live the law of the gift, insofar as you give yourself, you're going to come up against yourself as well because you you and I are both fallen sinners. And so mm-hmm. we, we, we have to learn to integrate divine love all the more. And we, and so you're going to even experience, like, I still remember, uh, I wasn't there for the retreat. I still remember, uh, my, this, my friends from the seminary saying at one of their retreats, I may have mentioned on the podcast before where, uh, the bishop leading it said, you know, it's very often that it's, it's quite common for a priest to say that they've fallen in love with someone once in their life, in their life of ministry. Right. Sure. And I, and I, but I also thought that was a very human thing for him to say because, mm-hmm. but he didn't look at it as a bad experience. He recognized, they, you recognize it. You acknowledge it, and then you grow through it, and you act obviously according to your state in life. With that, right? You're not you're not saying okay, I'm going to give into it, but you recognize, wait, there's something going on in me emotionally, and and spiritually with this person that I need to adjust in my heart. And only then do we grow into a deeper love, which is Christ's love, which is this total detachment, this total. I mean, and what, like what I love at the end of the article, he goes into into the image of Mary Magdalene in the garden. Mm-hmm. What does what does you know? She clings to him, and what does he say? Don't touch me! Uh, no touching! No, he says, "No, no touching! touching. <laughs> no touching!" <laughs> right. This is and this is a great mystery in the Christian faith. Yeah. For Jesus to love the whole church, he has to distance himself from her. Right, and I, and I think the, the tough thing is that we've we've loaded some of this language with certain understandings already, uh, and it's important to emphasize that um well okay so uh when i was going to to therapy uh at one point in time my therapist looked me in the eye and said i don't care about you Hmm. and he he did this to to make a point that i was very concerned about like what does he think of me am i doing a good job is this going well and he wanted to violently shake me out of that uh and he said i don't care about you and what he was communicating was that his care for me goes beyond any of those little things that he wants me to be a healthier person. And so he will not allow me to hold on to him. Right. That's showing actually a deeper love and intimacy. And so we need to understand that like, uh, what we just talked about, about the whole not touching thing, um, uh, is that no, 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 this don't understand this as a lack of intimacy. It's a deeper kind of intimacy. It's a drawing up into the mystery of God's love. Yeah. Uh, so don't feel like you need to like love Jesus less <laughs> in order to love him more. Like right. don't, don't let your mind twist in that right. way. Um, and then also I think it's important that even though we're talking in a spiritual sense, I think there's actually a helpful analogy to um, this kind of sexual sense in which that, you know, uh, chastity is something you grow in. It's not something you, exactly. you're given and you lose. Yeah. You can only begin growing in chastity once you hit puberty. That's when you begin your growth in it. That's when you start to learn how mm-hmm. to do it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I think that, that it's not what we're talking about, but I think it's a helpful analogy as well. Yeah. So like I, I'm just looking at some of the tweets because you know when I read stuff, I tweet. Um, and I, I said this that priestly chastity, virginity, then requires a pastoral closeness. Yeah. That is simultaneously possible only through a distance. So that we can see the whole person, and if you will, you could say the whole parish as they are. 
right? The beautiful, Prosperity says, the beautiful becomes mine only through my act of letting it remain other than me. In other words, I'm not taking possession of it as my own. This is this is this is Mary Magdalene's um, pure act of purification when Jesus says to her, "Do not hold on to me." He's actually not saying, "Don't hold on to me," but he's saying, "Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to my Father to, and to your Father, to my God and to your God." In other words, there is a closeness we can have, but it's not possible in this way. It's only possible uh, in my ascension. So your inclination mm-hmm. is right. It's just being twisted. You want to hold on to me for yourself. Yeah, yeah, right? okay, yeah. And so, I mean, that's dangerous in marriage, too. That's dangerous in mm-hmm. priesthood. This is dangerous in human love because it's a fallen form of love that says, I want to hold on to you because you fulfill me. And the whole point of human love, though, and this is the transforming part of it, is that it is the whole point of human love is that it's meant to be an icon that points us to divine love so that we can participate and live in this divine love and show this divine love to others. So mm-hmm. that's a purification process that says, I do not I do not idolize the object of my love, but I see it, I see it with the, the loving eyes of Christ. And I see it through his yes. lens of love. I think the great test of this, whether a priest has done this or not, or what happens when a priest leaves a parish? Yes. Because there's something there's something about, like, one, you have to do this for yourself and your own priesthood, but you also have to model it for others. And if you really have this detached love, which is the greater love, that will prove itself, true or false, depending on what happens when the new priest gets yep. there. Yep. And? Because have you made the parish all about yourself, or have you made it about Christ? Yeah, or did you see, did your love for parishioners get twisted? into mm-hmm. this need to deal with your own emptiness and loneliness. Yeah. And so now you've idolized your parishioners and you are using them. You're actually not loving them. This, I mean, this This is why I think celibacy actually needs a lot better formation in seminaries in the sense of like we ha- we've we essentially taught, we, it's, it, when it's talked about, it's, it's only talked about in this kind of sexualized way. Right. And sometimes with the emotional stuff, but it doesn't get to the deep root of the spiritual nature of celibacy and, and mm-hmm. of the sign value and of the fact that it is really a, a sign of divine love being lived out incarnate for us today. So that when priests thinking that they're loving their people create like a, what I'd call like a spiritual codependency. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to father. He can fix all my problems. But the, and the priest does this exhausting himself, wearing himself out because he thinks that's what love looks like, but he's not yeah. actually training them into adulthood, into spiritual maturity. Right. Oh my God. Not guiding. Them it's into. so important. It's so important for the priest to be spiritually mature yeah. uh, because all the stuff, you know, the errors that happen in this are, are 99% of the time, not malicious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, the, you know, the responsibility. And I think, I think if you have a genuinely open heart and you're looking for constant conversion and formation in your life, yeah. I think God will keep you from making big mistakes yes. in this. Yes. Um, I, I think I, I trust that. So, um, yeah. Cause like what can happen then is like, I've, I've done, I've done this before in my ministry where, you know, something happens in someone's life and mm-hmm. they made a mistake in how they, they related to someone. Right. And they're yeah. like, father, can you call this person up and, 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 and see if they'll talk to me again. I'm like, oh, oh no. 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 I said, no, 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 no. no I won't. Well, what do you mean? No. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you've, 
I, I'm happy to, to give you spiritual advice on how you can deal with this personally, mm-hmm. but I'm not becoming the intermediary in your, in your mess in that sense, because I'm not, I can help you to come to peace with the mistakes you've made maybe. Mm-hmm. And I can help you come to peace with trying to come to reconciliation with this person, but I cannot become the mediator that fixes this for you because I'm not actually treating you how to grow in maturity. Because like what happens though, is like a lot of priests though, I, I hate to say it. I think a lot of priests sometimes do this. Not a lot. I should say some priests tend to do this and it keeps their faithful at a stunted level spiritually so that they yeah. can't actually grow in maturity in Christ so that they can't love in a way that you have loved others. You see, I, that uh, my bishop actually used a great phrase with me one day. He said, "Be pastorally close but socially distant." <laughs> I thought well, that's actually yeah. a great phrase. Like he recognized this need of closeness and distance at the same time, and that really is the form of divine love. Mm-hmm. It's this paradox of both. So I know this is a little bit um, all over the place, um, but I just wanted to kind of bring this in to talk about celibacy in a more spiritual sense and to look at virginity as a real expression of divine love. And that real love is purified through its interactions with people always. Yes. It grows in itself and it has to be aware of itself so that it doesn't idolize and use the other person for their own needs. God, that is not the way God's love works. And so God comes into the world to purify this, this in us. And the priest and religious is meant to be a great sign value of how to live this mm-hmm. for others. Mm-hmm. Anything, any last thoughts? No, that was cool. good. I think it, it, it was cool. good. All right. So uh, thanks for listening to podcasts. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those places you can find podcasts. You can contact the podcast, clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter at clericalpod. You can find me at FR Harrison. You can find me trying not to play Civ 5 all the time. Uh, and we will see you all next week. God bless. Peace. I almost forgot my closing line there. Yikes.